Good morning. <clears throat> Reaching for my iPad for the first time in like a year and a half. <laughs> so this will be fun. Um, <clears throat> internet has been a constant bane at the office uh, lately. So uh, I was able to troubleshoot to get to what you got, but uh, I'm preaching from here. So I'm excited about that. Uh, glad you guys are here this morning. Um, we, uh, if you were able to do renovate us, and I've been able to talk to several people that have, which is exciting. Um, you should have gotten, as we talked about last week, the milk very easily out of the text. Paul is incredibly easy to understand in his instruction. Um, he leaves no room for error in what he has to say. Um, and there's very little that we can uh, kind of take the wrong way. It's, he just lays out very emphatically exactly what he means. And so today, as we try to enter into a time of what would be preaching rather than, I suppose, teaching, um, there is a lot still in this text for us to gain rather than just what Paul easily lays out. So part of what we were trying to do in preparation for this is understand exactly what the qualifications are as we talk about widows for a church that would support them. But I hope to show you today that there's, there's so much more to unlock in here by just one simple word, and that comes in our title even today, an honor in the body. So in our text of 1 Timothy 5, um, we're going to take a look at familial relationships. And when we talk about family, I think it's interesting when you go into people's houses, uh, it's very easy to see um, who's important to them, right? All you have to do is find wherever they put their pictures, uh, and you can easily tell who's probably an immediate family member, who's probably an extended family member, um, and then you'll, you'll not see the people that they don't want you to see. Um, that's kind of how it goes when you look at pictures. The person who is in you know, prominence or the, the people that are prominently featured, whether it be you know, the big canvas over the mantle uh, or the 8 by 10 of each child or you know, my favorite one. I, I kind of wish I had one of these, but I'm also terrified of what it would look like. You go in and you see people who have like, you know, seniors in high school, and it's got their senior picture in the middle. But then it's got like first, second grade, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, all the way around, right? Um, yeah, those are funny and kind of cool, but also terrifying when I look at my pictures. Um, but you see who's important because they're bigger, right? Uh, people who are a little less, uh, I mean, obviously they're still recognized in the family are in the, you know, four by six or the wallet. Um, <laughs> you know, the smaller ones are a little bit more to the outside, but it's easy to see who gets, you know, honor when you walk into someone's home. Because those people are respected, they're lifted up. And it could simply just be, you know, the husband and the wife and their kids. But oftentimes you'll see very closely the grandparents, right? You'll see uh, grandparents, great-grandparents. Um, you see close cousins. You see friends that you grew up with. All those things are featured in those. And as I think about ours, as we're kind of going through what we have um, from our move and trying to figure out where everything goes, you can see from two years ago exactly who uh, we thought was important in our pictures. Um, but what's exciting is we get to go through those again now, fresh, um, having completed a two-year journey into a new home, and uh, get to pick pictures that are not wedding pictures. So that's exciting. Um, we have two kids now that we can put on the wall. Um, but it's easy to see exactly who's important. And likewise, again, it's easy to see who's forgotten, right? You'll never see the extended crazy third uncle on a picture in anybody's house, right? Anybody? Okay, I don't know who my third uncle is. Um, the problem is, I think in the church, we uh, can easily slip into resembling that same picture. 
right? So if the church is likewise a family, whose pictures are prominent? If you look at our website, it would be Matt and myself um, have our own page, but then you would find that our, you know, some leaders have specific pictures up there. But if we were to kind of go by what does a relationship look like, I think we find that we can easily marginalize people in the church. I think we can find that our relationships between people in the church are distant and remote. See, in the church, it should not be that your third removed crazy uncle in the church is a distant relationship, right? In the church, the person that you are least close to in here, you need to be close to them. Why? Because this large body represents an even larger body. We are all co-heirs with Christ. We are all supposed to be in relationship with each other. But the problem, I think, is our culture celebrates youth, energy, fashion, and informality in particular, which tends to cause elderly people to be forgotten or treated with little honor. It's hard enough as a young person to stay hip, current with it, all that jazz, and still stay prominent in relationships. Now, what about those people that are not up to date on culture? How do they stay in relationship with those that would fight to stay in the culture? I think the problem is we easily begin to just kind of push to the outside, whether it be in cliques, whether it be simply in just not serving, not laying our life down, people start to end up on the fringe. And what happens when people end up on the fridge in, a ch- in, in the fringe in a church? They fall off. The idea of the vine, the idea of you know the body, the idea of the city, all the pictures that we see in Scripture of what a community of believers is supposed to look like, those who are on the outside fall off. They're supposed to be firmly grafted in. They're supposed to be firmly seated inside of the body. To remove it, whether it be a vine or a body whether it be someone in the outside of the walls of the city. It's a dangerous place to be. We need to remember, too, that we're in our text coming out of chapter 4, where he starts by saying, some will depart from the faith. You see, the danger as we get into chapter 5 of 1 Timothy is that we're going to forget everything that's happened before. That's one of the drawbacks of flying so low to the text, is we can lose kind of the chain of events. And so in Renovatus, one of the goals for that um, was that you guys would be able to start remembering some themes and seeing how Paul keeps picking up on them. And so if we're going to talk about family members and, and what that looks like, what has he already said about family members? You know, I was, uh, last Sunday my phone started not being happy. Um, couldn't catch a signal anywhere. Just could not get one. So Monday, um, I go into AT&T, try to get a new SIM card. They Slip that in there, no avail. I uh, still can't get a signal. They tell me to go to Apple because everybody likes to pass the buck, and I go over there and I sit at a table, a genius table, not a bar anymore, uh, for, for three hours. All right. Unfortunately, we have one in Dayton, so I don't have to drive down to Cincy twice like last time. Um, I'm in Dayton. I'm at a table three hours. All right. They're working on my phone, trying to restore it, doing all these things, and I'm just sitting there because I didn't bring my iPad in. Um, so I'm just sitting there. And uh, I just start people watching because there's people all around me. And uh, to date, this is the uh, most expensive uh, illustration that, in God's grace, he has graced me with. Um, My phone does not work anymore, so if you've been trying to text me all week, that's why. Um, However, those three hours were not uh, in great loss. (laughs) Um, I got to see lots of people come in. And it was interesting to watch how, like, the employees worked with each person that came in. You have these young people that come in, 
Uh, I say young people as if I'm older. I feel like it. Uh, you have these young people that come in, and they're all, you know, torn jeans, like I'm not wearing them today. Um, they come in, and they just give attitude, right? Everything's Apple's fault. Everything's the, the genius guy's fault. You're not a genius. You're dumb. They use other words. Um, the whole time. And then, then you have these people that come in that are old, right? Old. So beyond us, okay, all of us, um, they come in with just shattered screens, and it makes me, like, want to vomit, all right? So they come in, and they sit down, and they're smiling. <laughs> You're crazy. <laughs> they sit down, they're smiling like, yeah, I was just wondering if you could help me. You're supposed to be a genius, right? <laughs> and I'm, like, snickering and losing it. Um, You're supposed to be a genius, right? I, I think I can help you, ma'am. What happened? Oh, Okay. Um, we, we can help you, but you're under warranty, but that's not under warranty. Well, what, what needs to happen so that I can use my device again? Um, <laughs> we're going to have to replace the screen. Well, I figured that. <laughs> Thank you, old lady. Um, it's going to cost some money. Okay, well, that's fine. They understand that it was their fault. It was my fault. I did it. You have these other people that come in, they're older, and they don't know how to use their device, and some things are easy, um, and, you know, they're, they're gracious with them, some in the name of customer service, some in the name of, you know, their actual character, um, and I turn to the guy that's helping me, and I go, most of these things seem pretty easy to fix, and he goes, yeah, goes, does this job get hard sometimes? No. <laughs> it, it gets tough, because people... Everyone assumes, right? Everyone assumes that people know what they're doing. They assume that you know, they know what you know. And, and you see these people interact with each other, forgetting that people are, are even human, right? Um, the church can do that too. We can forget that people are human. And so God gives us a very, very easy way to understand what this should look like. What does it look like when something's your fault? And you walk into a store and you need people to help you. What does it look like when it's not your fault? And you walk into a store and you need people to help you. Uh, but the canter won't because it's out of warranty. Um, what does it look like? Well, the way we're supposed to treat uh, especially each other, let alone people, Jesus tells us in John chapter 13. In verse 34 to 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love, for us, is the backbone of the family and of the church. And this is what intimacy should look like. And with the idea of family, there's a different type of intimacy. In fact, we oftentimes try to take our blood relationships with our family and have that supersede or trump the church. And we forget that the blood family is a family that will end. But the spiritual family is one that will go for eternity. Just like last week when we talk about training in godliness, training in godliness is of benefit both here and in the age to come, while physical training is only of benefit now. It's only of some benefit. And so if, if John 13 tells us how we should love one another, and that's what true intimacy in the family looks like, what happens when, when you have sin involved? What happens when someone in the family is caught in sin, living in sin. I mean, if we look at just Paul writing to Timothy here, just in, in our letter, okay, not even in the other letter that he wrote in Ephesians, 
The sin in Ephesus looks like this. Some sinning members of the church had abandoned truth and godliness. Some had shipwrecked their faith. Some women had abandoned their proper role and were trying to usurp the function of men. Some of the men aspiring to leadership were not qualified. And others were teaching demonic false doctrines. But we see, too, also now today, that some of the older widows were living impure lives, as were some of the younger ones. And so family, if it's supposed to be about intimacy, how would this type of sin? I mean, we're talking about some major ones. Not even just the, the, the white ones, right? The small ones. How would some major sins impact and disrupt this type of intimacy in the family? I think a better question, too, is how could it spread, right? In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. I write to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean with the immoral people of this world, but with any so-called brother, if he should be sexually immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And so Timothy, as a leader, would need to address sin. I mean, that's part of where we get our, our title, leading the fight. We want to see leaders trained, and we need to understand that it's a battle for different aspects of Christianity, but in this particular case, for family. And so he needs to address sin, and we're going to see him say, teach these things, command these things, even in our text today. But he has to do it fearlessly, and he's got to do it authoritatively. Paul says to Titus that these things you need to speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, period. Let no one disregard you, period. It seems to be that when people don't agree with you, they simply just disregard you. With no thought to the truth whatsoever, no, no, no trying to think through it, they just disregard. And so why would a rebuke of this level be needed? Because people disregard. People disregard the truth. And such rebukes need to be severe, because we need to remember the danger. Why do I need to be re severe in my rebuke? What did we just talk about a couple of weeks ago? There's a great danger that you will not persevere. Because this one rebuke that a brother comes to you with could be the first step of many down the wide road that leads to destruction. We're going to see later the, the language to stray. If the road to eternal life is narrow, any deviation to the left or right straying a little bit is disastrous. So rebuke has to be taken seriously. But we need to remember ultimately that rebuking of sin has to be done with great patience. So it can be severe, it can be direct, but we need to be patient with people. Why? Well, we're going to talk about that now. Let's jump in our text and start in verse 1 and 2. The first thing I want you guys to see is that families thrive in honor. Families thrive in honor. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters. And all purity. And so the first thing that we're going to kind of tackle here, we're going to see three or four different relationships. Uh, we're going to see kind of the amongst each other. Uh, and uh, to those above us, we're going to see um, the church to widows. After that, next week, we're going to see the church to elders. Uh, and then following that, we're going to see church members to, like, their, their bosses. So we'll kind of see the employee relationship. 
But we start here with the immediate familial relationships. And we see fathers and mothers, we see brothers and sisters. What's going on here? If we're going to think of our church body as family, and this is not elders, so if your Bible says elder men, uh, it's not talking about Matt and I, it's talking about legitimately older people, older than yourself as a standard, we'll call it that. So we're talking about do not rebuke. So the word for rebuke is a, a very harsh word. It's, it's got a sense of violence to it. So do not be harsh or violent towards an older man. But you should encourage him. And that word is appeal. Um, it, it's a similar word, like one letter off of being the same type of word that we have for Holy Spirit, a paraclete. Um, if you've ever heard of that term, we have the Holy Spirit as our paraclete. He is our helper. The idea of a paraclete or paracleo is to come alongside. We want to strengthen. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us, right? He's our helper. He's our strengthener. He gives us hope. He pushes us along. The idea of a younger man coming beside a father would be to encourage him, to strengthen him. He says in Galatians chapter 6, 1 and 2, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So, one of the dangers is that when we see sin, we just name it. And we forget the relationship and respect that is deserved among family members. So, speaking particularly from my case, it's just easiest to use as an example. Uh, in fact, my father and mother are here too, and my brother and my sister-in-law. So, I got them all, all right? Um, the way that I have to encourage my father is not to say, Dad, this is sin, repent. Um, it's to say, Dad, this is, I think this is dangerous. Here's, here's why I think that in Scripture, and I'm concerned for you. But it is entirely different, right? Um, are both of them right? Well, if it's legitimate sin, yes. <laughs> Um, but one is respectful and one is potentially uh, disrespectful. Same thing with mothers. He says uh, later, older women as mothers. So the way that I approach my mother probably needs to be even softer than I would with my dad, right? Well, that's the same way that I need to approach chastity. That's the same way I need to approach Christy, Pam. Why? Because they're part of the body. They're also my mothers, Right? We need to treat them with that respect that comes with that. Now, for those that are much closer to, well, no, sorry, those that are closer, <laughs> um, those that are closer to my age, like within a year or two, we'll put it that way, um, it would be my sisters, right? Especially those that are younger than me. And so those I, I need to treat with respect as well, right? I think what's interesting, too, is if he's, he adds the peace in all purity after the younger women as sisters. Why? Well, it's not specifically speaking to sexual purity. I think it's easy for us to think that. Um, yeah, I should not, you know, move towards them in a sexual way. But it's in the mind and the heart, right? Purity goes beyond the physical. It's in the mind and the heart. And what's interesting is that if incest is forbidden in Scripture, which it is multiple times, then all of a sudden when this lady becomes my sister, it goes from a, mm, to a, ah, right? If I think of my sisters as sisters then all of a sudden I need to basically be indifferent to them in terms of lust, right? I, I didn't grow up with the sisters, so I don't know what that would be like. 
Um, <laughs> I imagine I would not think of them in a lustful way. Uh, why? They're my sister, man. That's messed up. Same way it should be in our body, right? I mean, that's the idea that we see here. These younger women as sisters in all purity, in the mind and in the heart. And so we see very early on in this chapter that Paul is very unashamedly pro-marriage and pro-family, right? I think what we need to look at then today is that wherever you are, so I kind of describe my relationships, how does that apply to where you are? Who's older than you? Who's a father to you in the faith? Who's a mother to you in the faith? Who's a brother and a sister to you in the faith? And it's going gonna, it's gonna to change even, too, depending on your, on your status. If you're single, what does it look like for you? Uh, you, you don't have a sister who's a wife who's not a sister that you can commit yourself to, right? You're supposed to be committed to God, so what does it look like then to date while thinking of your sisters in Christ? What, what does it look like for someone who's barren? How does the gospel impact them? What about coming out of abuse, whether it be as a child or in marriage or, or even at work? What does it look like to, to have that type of thing in your life? How does the gospel impact them and work through here? Well, it, very clearly, it's still supposed to be a familial relationship. But the key here that we're looking at is this is people in the body. And so we're going to draw a little bit of a hard line today on those who are in the body and those who are outside of the body. First, we need to distinguish whether they are in or out. Now, should we love all people? Absolutely. But we're going to see that we have to go above and beyond a little bit for our brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ. And what's interesting about these first two verses is that it lays a very, very heavy command, right? Because what happens in relationships when you're talking with someone because all of us have never fought with our parents right (laughs) where does that come from what sparks that fight with the parents because the same things are what spark issues in the church particularly when we're going to be talking about rebuke i mean that's the main verb here right rebuke if we're trying to call sin out in their life if we're trying to strengthen them and come alongside of them how do you do that? You have to honor them. Why? You honor and encourage them like a father. You walk as brothers in arms. You encourage and are gentle with your mother. And you bring along your sisters. And so, for me, it makes it a little bit difficult as, as elders, I think, when we look at this. I'm a younger man, going to older men who are my father, but also as their elder. That's a little sticky, right? Because what happens when the father, to me in the faith, or even my father, well, I'm not an elder over him, the father in my faith that I'm an elder over, how does that work when, when they don't repent? That's what the body's for, guys. That's when I get other fathers, right? That's when I get other elders. And and play there. Now, where it gets really sticky is with ladies. And here's a problem I think the church um, has when it comes to elders and older women and even younger women in the church. Most churches, at least that I'm aware of, the women are ministered to by women. You, you, I have not really ever seen, uh, with the exception of, of one man, but it was in a very, um, very kind of general sense like this. It was just older, all all classics, um, ministering to 
all older people. I've never seen like one on not one on one, but like lower discipleship ministry of an elder to to women. You just don't see that. You see an, an older lady doing that close discipleship with women. I think that's a tragic um, a, a tragic hiccup that we have in the church. The elders are, are called to, to shepherd all of the sheep. Whether they have gray hair or blonde fleece, I don't know how that works. Um, all of the sheep. And so how do we make that happen? The church has to display what proper relationships look like. And I think there's a balance that we have to be careful of in purity of relationship, right? But there's still a need for the elders to care, love, serve, and teach women. So, so how does that work? Because you'll never see me one-on-one with another lady that's not my wife or my daughter. You, you just won't. I can't do that. Why? The culture is a, is a big hiccup in that, but also the withal purity thing. I avoid putting myself in situations like that so that I can maintain that idea of purity. So, so what does it look like? Well, I've been incredibly blessed uh, just lately um, having most of our older women uh, to my home for children's meetings. Um, it's a chance for me as an elder to help set vision for our family ministry, also to instruct them in a way that I'm treating them, or at least trying to, as my mothers uh, in the faith, and, and Heather as my sister. Um, that's me with, with ladies in a, a place that is God-honoring and an opportunity for me to care for them, love them, serve them, and, and then lead and teach them uh, without just kind of throwing the ball to another lady. Not that she can't do that, but she's not called to that. And so we have to make sure that we think through these two verses that are really easy to just say, okay, just respect people. There's a lot of implications for us as a church and a family and honoring each other. The next thing I want you to see as we kind of shift gears a little bit is that we honor those in our care. And so while families thrive in honor, when honor is given to fathers, when honor is given to mothers, we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ as brothers and sisters. When we lay down our life for them, families thrive in that relationship. That's why the church in Ephesus can come out of all of this sin that is being named. He's able to instruct Timothy to lead a church through all this. Why? Because they're honoring each other through the process. And so we begin then in, in verse 3 with a, a little bit of an instruction time. We see the second relationship that we honor those in our care. Verse 3 says, honor widows who are truly widows. John MacArthur says this. He says, God has always designed that women be the special objects of care. They are to be under the umbrella of male protection, provision, authority, and direction. And anyone who believes that women, like men, are to support themselves needs only to recognize the obvious fact that this whole section in Scripture is concerned only with helping women in need. It assumes the divine design that calls men to support themselves and their wives and a woman to love and serve the one who supports her. And when that support is gone, she is still to be cared for. Our culture would not say that, right? Women are independent and on their own, and they are capable of everything that a man does, in every circumstance. That, that, that's, not the, that's not what drives the scripture, right? In every case, we are to care for women, right? Now, what's interesting, though, is he adds the phrase truly widows at the end, right? We're going to talk about that, and he picks up with that in verse 5 some more. But if we're looking at, like, widows, what does the Bible have to say about widows? And not necessarily a particularly interesting or exciting passage to preach this week, um, there's just not a lot of them, right? At least in our context, particularly. But Scripture has a lot to say about widows. 
And I think we would be remiss to avoid it simply because it doesn't seem to apply to us because there's tons here that there's more that applies to us, not widows, uh, than it does to them in this passage. James chapter 1 verse 27 says that pure religion is to look after orphans and widows, particularly in their distress. Exodus and Deuteronomy have tons to say on the subject. So much so that if you neglect to care for a widow, you should be killed. Paul says in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 8, 9, uh, he says to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I forgot that the word widow was in that passage. We only ever hear it with singles, right? Like the unmarried young 20-something singles. I totally forgot that the word widows was in that passage. We see even in Acts that we talked about not too long ago with deacons, that deacons were instituted based initially off this very need of caring for widows, right? The elders were having to care for the widows in the church. They were not able to keep up with that duty. And so the first major duty of a deacon was to care for widows. That's not their only function, as we discovered, but that was one of the initial things that launched that. We see Jesus have lots to say about it in Mark chapter 12, Luke 21, Luke 2, 7, 18. We see him recount the story, or observe rather, the story of a Pharisee who goes to the temple and gives his offering. And what does he do in the big chamber that they throw their money in? He takes all his pennies like at VBS that I tried to teach you guys about last couple weeks ago. And you throw it in there and it makes a big noise, right? Right, the scale, I'm not going to try this one again. The scale goes down, right? VBS. Um, you make lots of noise. That way everybody knows that you gave the most money. And then what happens after that? This little old lady comes up, goes up to the thing, drops in her two pennies, and doesn't even make a sound. And what does Jesus have to say about those two? The widow gave more than the Pharisee. Why? She gave all that she had. And Jesus says that she is to be honored for that. So Jesus has a lot to say about widows, and we'll see even here in a minute how important it is to him. So the word honor, let's talk about that some. We did earlier, let's talk about it now, because it starts with that honor. Honor widows who are truly widows. This word for honor is the same word that we see in the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, right? But understand that both both then and the fifth commandment and now, honor is not simply a respectful term. It has a material dimension to it. Honor in this case is not simply giving of respect, but it is a material dimension. How do we know this? Well, one of the qualifications that we're getting ready to see is that if a widow has family members, they're supposed to take care of them, right? And so it's not simply widows who don't have help are worthy of respect, because widows with help are still worthy of respect, right? Honor older women as what? Mothers. So it's both a respect and a material dimension. So we move on then in uh, what does truly widows mean. This is kind of the thrust of where we're getting ready to go. We're going to see lots of qualifications. So honor those who are truly widows, verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren... Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this, what? It's pleasing in the sight of God. 
It's pleasing in the sight of God. That's why he has lots to say about it, because that's pure religion. To take care of orphans and widows in their distress. So let's talk about what these qualifications mean. The church body has a responsibility to care for all of its people. Yes? That's our first beginning point. The problem is we have many women in, in this context, in the church then, that were being supported by the church and were essentially draining its funds. Why? Well, one of the things here that he says in order to combat this problem is that people with relatives, people with children, people with grandchildren that could support the widow were not, or might have been anyways, but the church was still supporting them. And so Paul says that if she has relatives, they need to care for her. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. First, it, it displays to the world. It's a display to the world the love of God. How do we know that? Well, he just talked about that in chapter 3 with the mystery of godliness. Right? The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. What's the point of him using that language? Well, to draw attention to the temple of Diana, like we talked about, that's in Ephesus. It's huge. It's a display of the glory of man in that case. And so for the church, is a display of the glory of God. And so when we're looking at how does a relative care for their wife, well, it displays to the world love. And that's the backbone of the church. The second and probably bigger reason is that it helps them learn godliness. We just talked about this in chapter 4 last week. It helps them learn godliness. They need to put their religion into practice is basically what's happening. So the, the, the word learn for us here is not specifically just a gathering of information, right? We go to school to learn. Or we just gather information. The idea here with this word, manthano, is that it's put into practice. They have to obey what they've learned. You see, when it comes to an issue of truth, when we learn truth in church, we don't just get to process it and then acquire it. The Word of God is living and active, and it demands a response. And so anything that we learn from Scripture, we either then proceed to obey or disobey. And so when we're learning godliness, it's not simply an acquiring of data. It's taking that data, it's taking what we learn of the truth of God, and either putting it into practice and learning godliness, or we neglect it, and we disobey, and we move um, away from godliness. So godliness, in our particular case, begins in one's own family, Right? The family is the context in which genuine godliness is manifested. It's where it begins being learned as a child, and it's where it begins being manifested as they grow older. Godliness for Paul is intensely practical rather than super spiritual. I mean, it's very easy the way he lays it out. It's simply caring for your parents. He talks later about hospitality and caring for others. These are not super spiritual issues to resolve. We don't need to read three books on hospitality to learn how to care for people. Why? Because if you're a believer, you've been cared for by the king. We just talked about being servants of the king. If you serve the king, how, how do you not learn in the court of all courts how to serve people? Particularly when you go to your brothers and sister and you're supposed to think of them as better than yourself. The way that we serve others is intensely practical. Now, we, we talk about the heart a lot here and, and trying to be careful about, you know, diving too headlong into practicality and just doing what works. Paul says this is what works. If you want to learn godliness, you just practice it. Just do it. Well, I like how he kind of adds this little thing in at the end. 
He says, and to make some return to their parents, right? I'm learning the investment of what a parent means. Um, And I think I'm at the easier stage right now. Uh, My wife is probably paying more than I am. Um, She is paying more than I am. Um, I imagine mine is is coming (laughs) as uh, my girls get older. I'm learning what that investment into children looks like. And yes, I would like a repayment later in my life (laughs) on what that looks like. But the idea here is that they're literally returning payments to their parents. It's not just so that it would be of some benefit to their parents, but their parents put an investment into you, and so you reciprocate that back to them when they need your care. Finally, in in verse 4, he says, For this is pleasing in the sight of God. This is just a practical outworking of the fifth commandment, to honor one's father and mother. And it's similar to what we just saw in uh, chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, that it's honoring to God, it's pleasing to God, same language, to live peaceful and quiet lives and all godliness and holiness, right? That's why we pray for our leaders, so that we can live peacefully and quietly in the land. I think the problem, though, is that it's all too easy to relinquish to the church this responsibility of caring for family members. It was for them, right? The church is simply there. It's a new institution, and it's supposed to care for all of its people, so they just pass out money, make sure everyone's taken care of. Well, they were running out of money. They can't sustain that. But it's easy for us to relinquish to the church the responsibilities that each one of us have, whether it be for caring for our family members, whether it be teaching our kids, whether it be serving, whether it be growing together in godliness. You see, there's, there's problems across the spectrum there. I can't, I, I can't and should not expect you guys to care for my parents as long as I'm still able to when they're in distress. They're, no longer, they're not currently in distress, uh, to my understanding. Um, I, I shouldn't expect that as long as I can help support. And, and then it's Robbie's job. And then arguably after Robbie and myself, it becomes our wives. Even if it's not theirs, Kristen to them, just to them, right? So when it comes to caring for family members, it's an issue. What about, what about teaching kids? Parents, you're responsible for teaching your kids. It's not their job, and it's not my job. It is not our job to, to train your kids in righteousness. Deuteronomy 6 says that you need to teach your kids this all day, all night, while we walk by the way, while we, in our case, drive in our chariots, while we are eating, when we lay down all day, we're supposed to be training our kids. It's who we are. The problem is we see this further professionalization of the church. And that's kind of where our, my background is we, we pay the, the guy to do the thing. Just like we go to pay a guy to clean our carpet. We pay a guy to cook our food. We pay a guy to clean our gutters. We, we pay a pastor to train our kids. That's not what family ministry looks like. It happens when we think about passing the buck off to our church uh, members when we're thinking about training in righteousness. Do you attend a class that the church offers so that you can help keep pace with the church as they run the race of the faith? Or do you say, well, these other people will go and they'll help me learn. I'll pick it up as I go. Do you pay the price or do you, do you pass it off? It comes with tithing. I mean, church funds are supposed to be reserved for the most needy and for those who have no natural relatives to assist them material. And so tithing could be paying the bills. The church could be paying for your bills anyways. If you're not tithing, you're robbing God of his money 
and you're basically using God's money, church money, to pay whatever it is you're doing with it. And so it's very easy for us to relinquish to the church our responsibilities of caring for family members and caring for ourselves. To honor God would be to keep up with our responsibility. It is dishonoring to God and not pleasing to God to drop our responsibilities. Verse 5. She who is truly a widow. So we're picking up from verse 3. Honor the widow who is truly a widow. Verse 5. She who is truly a widow. Here's the operative word. Left all alone. Has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. This is the crux for this entire passage. If you need to wake up now, wake up now. All right, here we go. This is my favorite verse in here. And this is what sets the pace for elders coming up. This is what sets the pace for employees coming up after that. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So left all alone is, again, just a reiteration of verse 4, and it's a pickup from 3. But what he does now is he's beginning to set up a contrast of two types of women or widows. The first one is a woman who has set her hope in the Lord. The second woman is a woman who has settled for this world, and we're going to see that in verse 6. And so this is kind of our second main qualification, right? It says, has set. Now this, this idea of has set her hope is in the perfect tense. Why is that important, English people? I know you guys get tired of hearing sentence structure. This is a big deal. Has set is in the perfect tense. And this denotes a settled state. And when we're thinking about this qualification stuff, it's easy to say, hmm, I need to do this so that I can be qualified, right? And we think about the elders and the deacons. I need to do these things so that I can be qualified to be an elder. In the widow's case here, it's been done. She has been this way and will continue to be. In the perfect tense, this is someone who has already been this, and she will then continue to be. How do we know this? Well, it's evidenced by her continued, has done, and will continue in her supplications and prayers, night and day, a Hebrew idiom for all the time. She's constantly in supplication and prayer. What's the key here? She understands that her provision is in the Lord. If her hope is on God, then she trusts him. Her provision is in the Lord. Understand this, that her husband was never her provider. The Lord has been and will always continue to be the provider. Now that the husband has passed, I, I'm, I don't know a better way to say this. I want to be sensitive. Nothing's changed in the provision sense that now that the, the husband has passed. And I don't want to oversimplify it, but we need to understand the type of dependence that we're talking about. This type of provisionary and giving uh, provision is coming from God. Uh, as Matt talked about last week in Servants of the King, right? We are all, first and foremost, what? Servants of the King. He just chooses to pay our paychecks through Chipotle, through, uh, I can't remember the name of your electric place, uh, through Miami Valley, through Good Sam, right? We're first and foremost servants of the king. And so if she has been first and foremost a servant of the king all through her life, then when we roll in here to chapter 5 and her husband has passed, nothing changes in her provision. God will simply bring the paycheck a different way. There's an example of this for us in Scripture. I think that might help uh, settle this. In Luke chapter 2, 
We're looking at the, the coming of Jesus, right? In Luke 2, 36, it says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. Probably married somewhere around 16 to like 20, maybe. Husband lived for seven years, and then she was widowed. What did she do? She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So from like 25 to 27 until she was 84, she served the church. She served in the temple. She prayed. She fasted. And what was what? What great privilege was given to her? She got to see the Messiah. For 84 years, she's serving. And God said, you're not going to die until you get to see the Messiah. How awesome is that? She gets to see little baby Jesus, right? Chrysostom, a a church father, says this. He says that the mere loss of a husband does not constitute a true widow. Jerome goes on, another church father, to say that true widows are approved by their years and by their lives. So what's the point of verse 5? Why did you need to wake up for this one? Because this lady has been an example all her life already. This widow that we're going to take care of, who's left alone, has set her hope on God before and will continue to do it now. Has she lost a great thing in her husband? Yes. I don't want to to belittle that. I understand that it's got to be incredibly painful. The thought of losing my wife or even a kid, as he's reasoning about Isaac, just, just wrecks my heart. Training physically is of some value. Training in godliness is for the age to come. Having her hope set on God from beginning to end illustrates that she is truly one of God's children. And so we get to see now the contrast in verse 6. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. The true widow does not indulge in the pleasure-seeking lifestyle. We saw what her life looks like. It seems that many of the younger widows have succumbed to this. And we'll see more on that later in verse 11 through 15. So rather than be supported by the church, these women that are living self-indulgent lifestyles need to be abandoned to the consequences of their sin. Their desperate situation may then lead them to repentance. And in the meantime, kingdom resources must not and cannot be used to support a sinful lifestyle. If the church is supposed to be a revelation of the mystery of godliness and is a pillar and buttress of the truth and to support in a very financial and immediate sense someone who is living actively in an unrepentant lifestyle of wickedness would be to say that the church approves of such action. And those who have been shipwrecked by their faith might be saved in the day of judgment having been kicked off the ship. And so that these ladies who are living indulgent are dead even while they are alive. And just as the widow, the godly widow, has set her hope in the Lord is in the perfect tense. What does that mean again? She has been and she will continue to be. This word for dead is also in the perfect tense. She has been and she will continue to be. Nowhere else in Paul or in the New Testament do we see that type of declaration. He's emphatic here when he talks about her being dead. This woman is spiritually dead even while she is alive. 
physically. Now, again, we don't see that particular thing, but we see the inverse multiple times in the New Testament. Right? We see a proper declaration to the believer. In John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Someone who is physically dead is spiritually alive. In Romans 8, Paul again says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And so, yes, he's, he's harsh when he talks about this woman. She is physically alive but spiritually dead. But we see the inverse being true for those who are in Christ, that they are physically dead but spiritually alive. That's what it means to lay down your life. That's what life in godliness looks like. Now, I think one thing that we need to remember, though, is that this needs to remind us of the blinding nature of sin. The blinding nature of what sin is, that someone can be dead and not know it. Unless we, we think too highly of ourselves, Paul tells us, lest were some of you. We were all dead in our trespasses, right? And if not for God, he would not have woken us up. A dead thing does not come to life on its own. We were dead in our trespasses, enemies of God, haters of the cross. We were blind to the sin in our lives. The Holy Spirit brings us out of that and justifies us. So we need to remember as we deal with people in the church that are in sin, that sin is blinding. And we need to remember when people come to rebuke us, like we talked about in verses 1 and 2, we might be blinded. We need to take seriously the proper, and even improper, let's be honest, the improper rebuke of people in our lives. Verse 7 and 8 goes on. He says, command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. What's the purpose? The purpose is to protect people from being dead in their physical life. So they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Well, obviously, I don't know how to expound on this. Timothy's supposed to pass these things on. Command these things. Verse 8 reiterates in an escalated form the principle that's already stated in verse 4. Why he escalates it? Because Paul does not leave room for us to wonder. It says that those that do not have denied the faith. Let's look at how important, we're talking about denying the faith, walking away from the truth of God. <coughs> how important is the issue of widows to, to Jesus? Who did Jesus talk to when he was on the cross? The thief, right? Concerned about his internal location. And John, at the foot of the cross, who was next to his mother, concerned about his mother's physical location. John chapter 19 but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And what happened? From that hour the disciple took her to his own home. He was concerned while he was dying about his mother. Who had a, he had a brother <laughs> to take care of him. But he wanted John to be sure to take care of his mother. You see, after all, even unbelievers who have the law written on their hearts take care of their own family. And so for us to, 
to not take care of our family, it makes us worse than an unbeliever. And moreover, claiming to be religious while failing to keep God's commandments is just simply hypocritical. <coughs> so similar to James, Paul is telling Timothy that faith must show itself in work. So it's not true faith at all. I think Jesus sums this up very well in Matthew chapter 7 as he ends the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Training in godliness is incredibly practical. It's incredibly practical. Last thing, we honor God with our legacy. Honor God with our legacy. <coughs> Is there a water back there under the thing? Verse 9 says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. All right, so this looks like a qualification again. Why are there so more qualifications? We're shifting, we're shifting tracks again here. Remember Anna? That, that widow who served in the temple for 84 years. This idea of being enrolled is not to be put on a list. Thank you. It's not to be put on a list to be taken care of. That's not what we're talking about anymore. When the main criteria for being taken care of is whether or not she has kids that will take care of her, and two, whether or not she's set her hope on God or is living a, a, uh, a uh, vain lifestyle. When we get here, we're, we're, to my understanding, okay, so I may need to recant this, but from all that I've, I've studied on this, my understanding of being enrolled is not being put on a list to be taken care of. This is special enrollment and ministry in the church. It's like taking a pledge of ministry to the church. And so there are qualifications for this ministry, for them to be put on this ministry. And so let's, let's, let's move with that. We're talking about being enrolled in dedicated service to God, primarily in the church, this is similar to like an unmarried single, someone who can devote their life to singleness, who doesn't feel called to marriage, like Paul suggests. That way you can devote yourself to God only and not to God and a husband. This is kind of like a, 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 I don't want to say second chance, but like a, a second opportunity uh, for a, a woman particularly to be able to dedicate their life and service to God in this manner. And so the first qualification is that they, they have to be 60 years old. Why is that? Well, it, presumably because at that age, remarriage was unlikely uh, and or because women under 60 were considered capable of working. Um, so we're, we're kind of talking about like a retirement age here, but also like a, not a cutoff, but a, an average cutoff of when people are likely to get remarried. In fact, in Roman, um, in Roman law, if you were a widow under 50 years old, you were like required to get married again. Um, so that the state didn't have to take care of you, and so that we didn't have widows everywhere. Um, you were required to get remarried. And so at 60, the idea is that um, if you're under 60, you're capable of working at least a little bit to support for yourself, most likely. Uh, and you're, you're probably not going to be getting remarried at that point. Now, obviously, there are, are exceptions in most cases. But to be on this list, you have to be at least 60. Why, why are those two things important? Well, 
this kept the list reasonably short, especially with life expectancy being much more limited than it is now. So today, the age limit may correspondingly be set higher. Um, I'm not going to make that call. <laughs> um, but the key here is that she has to be uh, at least 60 years old. We're going to see more why in a, in a minute. Having been the wife of one husband, this is the idea similar to an elder, right? That this wife should have been devoted to one man, just like I say, man should be devoted to one woman. Not only should a widow have lived in prayerful dependence on God, in verse 5, she must have been faithful to her deceased husband. So yes, God was her provider all along, but she was faithful and serving her physical provider while she was here. Now, if we're talking about being enrolled in service, what's the point of the service? Is it just, just, just to fill a widow's last hours in her life? Now understand the, the enormous benefit to the church that comes about from a woman who has no husband anymore. Its children are grown. And she has time to devote her life to the service of the church. That's huge. That is, that is huge, the type of impact that she can have in the church. But second of all, too, think about the impact that the church has on her. We, think, we read through this and we, and we miss the idea of how can the church serve her in a non-monetary fashion. I think about like kids, right? how kids minister to older women, just in general, women in general. It's crazy. Older women especially. That, that's a huge refreshment in their soul. It's huge in that she gets benefit from serving the king, just as we all get benefit from serving the king, right? So it is definitely a reciprocal relationship. Let's keep going. Verse 10. Having a reputation for good works, if she brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, this woman, again, perfect tense, has been, will continue to be. You want to talk about a Proverbs 31 woman? I like this woman too, all right? She's awesome. Because like a fifth qualification for this is she needs to be known for her good deeds. Where do most of those happen? Look at the list. Bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, caring for the afflicted, and devoted to every good work. These standards for widows, most of which relate to the domestic sphere, are high and are in some ways very reminiscent of the qualifications for church leaders. This is a huge thing. To bring up children, to be faithful in raising children is an enormous task. I know I was a child. I know now I have children. <laughs> it's crazy the amount of work it takes on the dad's side, let alone on the mother who is in the domestic sphere and showing hospitality, taking care of strangers. That's kind of important when you have traveling preachers in this time. Wash the feet of the saints. We're talking about humble service to the body. Just as Jesus humbled himself to wash the disciples' feet, this widow needs to have been doing these things. Cares for the afflicted. She helps those in distress. She's devoted to every good work. And Paul uses a lot of catch-all phrases so that we can't argue with them. So if I forgot anything else, she's devoted to every good work. Thanks, Paul. Could have just said that. He just lays it out for us. We, we can't get around this. And so this lady, this widow who is going to be enrolled in the service, has a reputation, has done it, will continue to do it. Are you starting to see the, the, the contrast in these two women? Because 11 and 12 gives us the other side. Refuse 
to enroll younger widows. Refuse is a very adamant word. To refuse a meal. To refuse a wedding invitation, a proposal. To refuse a job. It refuses an adamant end to this thing. There's no maybe. There's no in a month. You've refused it. But it's done. Refuse to enroll younger widows. Don't make exceptions, Timothy. Why? Because when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. What's happening is that these younger widows, maybe 30, maybe 40, whatever, have lost their husband. They're in a great time of grief. And so they make a pledge of singleness. And if you remember our context, the false teachers were pushing this, right? They were anti-marriage, while Paul immediately comes out here and being very pro-marriage, very pro-family. And so these young widows would make a pledge of singleness, and the false teachers would push that. They would love that. They would eat it up. The problem is, if you make a pledge to God, you make a pledge to God, whether it comes about through false teaching or not. That's why evaluating your teaching is so important, because you're held to the same standard either way. But the problem is, is that they too easily take this pledge in the throes of grief, and then they cannot hold to it once they come out of their mourning. And so what happens? Their passions draw them away, and they end up breaking a pledge of a vow to God. Now on top of that, in verse 13, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. Uh, this brings to mind uh, the cultural, it brings to mind TV, right? Um, all these uh, middle-aged women drinking wine, going to each other's houses, giggling, gossiping, freaking out over an iPhone 6 and breaking glass. Um, that type of thing, that's what's going on. Here's, here's a problem. Remember what, what's happening with the false teachers? What is the false teaching pushing them to? Idle chatter, inane babble, arguments. What do you think happens when you have gossips and busybodies? False teaching flourishes. Let's go back to where we started today. Take the leaven out of the lump. Because that sin, unaddressed, spreads to the whole thing. And we saw what it looks like to have a godly widow. When you have ungodly widows that are being supported by the church, that leaven spreads. And they become idlers. And they go from house to house. They don't produce anything for the kingdom or for themselves. Verse 14, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Younger widows should remarry and thus bear children, care for them, manage their households. This fills out chapter 2, verse 15. He's talking about the role of women. Think back. I'm trying to tie First Timothy together for you. This reaches back to chapter 2. Women will be saved what? Through childbearing. That's this. Bear children, care for them, manage their households. Paul's filling out earlier what he said earlier for the role of women. And what does this do? It gives no opportunity to the one who opposes or the adversary to slander. So what, what does Paul want them to do? This is an I would. So earlier it was a commandment. Now it's an apostolic um, urging, which to us we should take pretty seriously, um, given that there are no more apostles. Uh, when Paul says, I think, or out of wisdom, I think this would be the right decision, we, we should probably just go ahead and say, okay, that's the right decision. Um, I would have younger widows remarry. Why? 
so that they can learn to be that perfect tense, so that they can learn to be that I've done this and I will continue to do it. Else they fight massive, massive challenges through the remainder of their life as they struggle to live in singleness, as they have no one to devote themselves to, and as they're not learning godliness inside the home, which is the primary opportunity for us to take our religion and put it into practice. Sadly, in verse 15, he says, For some have already strayed after Satan. Paul ominously concludes that some have already turned away to follow Satan. Here he explicitly names the one that he was talking about in verse 14, the one who opposes is Satan. And we see that word strayed. This comes on the heels again, guys, of chapter 4, of people departing from the faith. Understand that perseverance is incredibly practical. Training in godliness is incredibly practical. Don't stray. Walk straight. That's pretty easy enough to comprehend. How do we do that? In the power of the Spirit. That's what perseverance is, right? Doing good works that God has prepared for us in advance to do. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we walk straight. All we have to do is be careful that we don't stray to the left or to the right. Lest we find out that this narrow path we're on is actually much wider than we thought it was. <coughs> I think a, a key aspect for us to take away today is that perseverance is not only incredibly practical, but it's very easy to discern. Uh, our culture hates that idea. Don't judge me. I don't have to judge you. All I have to do is look at you. Sometimes it's that easy. There's no judging. There's no evaluating going on. You say you're a banana tree, and all I see is orange things. I don't have to judge. I'm just observing. There's an eye test when it comes to Christianity. It's not necessarily doing evil, but it's simply out of not doing good. If you tell me you're an apple tree, and I never see an apple come out, then you're not an apple tree. Fruit is very clear and easy to discern. We, we can't forget that. Too often we try to compromise uh, and rationalize our sin. Now, I'm just producing oranges this year. <laughs> Next year I'll be back to bananas, um, as if that can happen. No, we need to be grafted into the vine and produce the one fruit that is pleasing to God. If we're concerned about departing from the faith, and we need to make sure that we are careful to persevere, we can look at the widows that were godly and had set their hope in God and did these things and continued to do them. And then we can even see these, these mature widows who are giving of their lives to the church. They're fasting. They're praying. They continue in supplications day and night. They give of themselves. They wash the feet of the, of the, of the disciples. They serve. They take care of those who are afflicted. They come alongside those who are hurting. What a beautiful picture. And they earn for themselves godliness. But for those who are dead, even while they're alive, they have been and they will continue to be. What are you doing that you will continue to do? Our only widow here that I'm aware of is, is back there. God's word has something for us. To summarize, rather than failing to do what they ought to do, good works, prayer, and being what they should not be, idle, gossips, busybodies, 
Young widows must devote themselves to family and to the Lord. Then they'll be, hopefully, ending up being the proper perfect tense, right? Because there's two types, which have been and will continue to do, will they end up. Verse 16 says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. If you read this and you just simply said restatement, you missed a key piece. If any believing what? Woman. Has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And this is not just simply a restatement. Paul puts the ball in the younger women's court as a service to the church so that the church will not be burdened. It starts with the women. Now, certainly men, you're to lead your wife, right? You need to help lead out in this too. The woman is probably the better, meeker, kinder, gentler vessel with which to accomplish this task, but you lead her in that. You lead her to be pleasing to God in his sight. And so just a few things to kind of wrap us up today. Have you ever thought about maybe the burden that you put on the church? I don't want you to take that in a bad sense necessarily, okay? We all come together in a community to, to share our burdens, right? We're supposed to bear even each other's burdens. Take upon yourself things that are not yours. But have you thought about the type of burden that you bring? Are you bringing an undue burden to the church because of a lack of responsibility on your part? Have you thought about your responsibility to care for not just widows, but believers around us? I mean, if we're looking at how to care for those who are supposedly without the ability to care for themselves, what does it look like for us to care for people who can help themselves? Should church funds be spent on people that have made a series of unwise choices? It puts us in a different place to be able to think through these things. What does it look like for a family to honor itself? You see, a family that begins with honoring each other avoids many of these other problems. Because one of the ways that I can honor you, all of you, is to take care of myself. Take care of things that I'm responsible for. If I make wise choices with my finances, I lessen the burden on the church. I'm honoring you in that. I'm taking care of myself. Now then, we don't have to get to the question of what happens when I make a series of unwise choices. Does the church have to make up for that? Where does grace fit into this? All of this comes back to honor. And if we're talking about widows particularly today, we need to understand that we all are going to leave a legacy. And what I think is fascinating about Paul's treatment of this is it's not something that we aspire to, it's something of who we are. It's something that we already are. No one aspires to be a widow of these character traits. When you're a widow, you don't say, man, I'm going to work at getting these character traits. You either have them or you don't. This is something that you learn in training and godliness, as Paul has already talked about. So training and godliness for us will help us leave a legacy of children and grandchildren, hopefully that will care for us, of a ministry to the church that can be remembered, of someone who is lucky enough to be able to see baby Jesus. But it will push us, too, to remember to care for those whose legacy is yet to be left. 
as we begin to develop our own. I want to pray for us, and then we'll uh, continue in worship and wrap today up. Holy Father, God, we thank you so much for who you are. Father, I thank you for your kind words um, to us, uh, particularly as men. Father, as we lead our families in caring for those uh, that you would call the weaker vessel, Father, that we understand that they are gentle and beautiful creatures, Father, that we can love the women in our lives as sisters and as mothers in a relationship that is honoring to you, that is pleasing to you, because it reflects the love that you have for your body. Father, we're so thankful uh, for the opportunity to be able to lay our lives down for those that are hurting. But Father, challenge us to lay down our lives for those who are not. Father, challenge us and embolden us to lay down our lives, our preferences, our desires, our wishes, our concerns for those that are very capable of supporting themselves. But Father, we simply do it out of a love for you and the preferences, desires, love, dream, everything that you, that you set aside and, Father, that you gave to us on the cross. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.